When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This holiday season, the best deal in wireless can only be found at Mint Mobile. Right now, when you switch to Mint Mobile and buy any three-month plan, you'll get another three months for free. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order and activate from home with eSIM. While saving tons on phone plans starting at just 15 bucks a month. For a limited time, buy any three-month Mint Mobile plan and get three more months free by going to mintmobile.com slash save. That's mintmobile.com slash save. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash save. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. So, Moose T, this is uh, an absolute pleasure because, um, well, our paths have sort of crossed in life, you could say, because yes. I'm a British person who has become um, a German and lived here uh, many, many years and also involved in the music scene, but not as a musician, but as someone who has reported on it, particularly in, in my past. And, of course, uh, you have popped up on my radar over the years many, many times because of um, your music. But I want to start uh, by talking about the fact that you have Turkish her heritage, but you were born in Germany, so you are German, and you were born in Hagen and then moved to Hanover. And I just wondered what your early years um, were like and what sort of music your parents listened to and when you started diverging from their musical tastes. Wow. First of all, pleasure, pleasure to do this. And I love your T-shirt, so all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, you rightly said, I was born in Hagen. My dad um, was a doctor and he basically came from, from Turkey. He studied in Istanbul and his professor was German. 
funny enough. So he kind of pointed out to him at one point to, to, you know, to get a job in Germany. So, you know, that's why he was then, I was born in Hagen while he was practicing there. And then, you know, he moved around like a couple of spots and then finally, you know, uh, settled down in Hanover. I think I was about probably five-ish or six-ish when we came here. And um, yeah, obviously, you know, my, my, my parents being Turkish, you know, my dad listened to Turkish music at home, which at that time I didn't really dig, to be honest, because, you know, whatever your parents listen to, you kind of like go, Ooh, you know, it's not really cool. My mom, funny enough, she listened to Tom Jones all the time, which I didn't dig either at that time, you know what I mean? Because it was kind of like, oh, you know, old people's music and whatever. And obviously, you know, as as you might know, I did some work for Tom later and obviously love him and appreciate his talent and everything. But yeah, that was basically my upbringing. So it was kind of like very, you can call it multicultural, but that kind of triggered something in me, you know. So because of that, I was probably really open to all sorts of music. And somehow, you know, my early music... Um, uh, love was was at the very beginning was rock heavy metal i used to have very long hair and uh probably one of the biggest acdc fans on the on the planet you know which is really great and if i might mention so you know because of pandemic and because of uh, us being in hanover the scorpions were just in my studio for one and a half years doing their album and obviously, I love them with friends, but for me, it's even greater that their new drummer is Mickey D, you know, who is basically a, a Motorhead's or who, who used to be a Motorhead's drummer. So that's, you know, the kind of like, uh, uh, um, you know, I love that being a hard rock fan. And um, so I did that, you know, and I'd want, I'd, I don't know which station I was listening to. It might have been like John Peel or something or even like German radio. But at one point, you know, when I heard... Donna Summer's I Feel Love, it kind of triggered something in me. So, you know, that opened another door for me. And I was like, oh, what is that? It's really strange, you know, no live drums, but it's really erotic and funky and groovy. So, and that's probably like early teenager, 13, 14 years old. So, yeah, basically I did the whole like journey from being like, you know, from the Turkish stuff to the Rocky stuff, a little James Brown in between to kind of electronic dance music. What did your parents install in you? What sort of uh, morality or perspective on life? What did they What did they give you? Looking back, when you when you look back at it now, that that has been useful to you in your life? Yeah, that's a very beautiful question. I mean, obviously, my parents being immigrants and always very respectful people, um, they said like, "Look, you know, we, we're here in Germany, so you know, we're going to do the best we can." We're going to, for ourselves and our, our children. So first of all, this is it meant to give us all a beautiful possibility of like a great school, school education, you know, which, which me and my siblings, you know, we all basically experience, which is great for us. But always, as I said, you know, very respectful towards people, hardworking. My dad said always, you know, it was pretty intimidating, but he said like, look, if you're not a, if you're not a study person, basically, you're nobody you know, which basically put a lot of pressure on all of us. And I studied for a bit, but then obviously I, I went uh, the music route. But, um, you know, he's, he, they were very much about like being respectful, manners, um, um, open-minded and funny enough, they being Muslims, you know, they never kind of like imposed that on us. They said like, look, if you guys, you know, I, th I think they tried to send me to a Turkish school 
after going to the German school. So, I, I, you know, they wanted me to do two schoolings a day, basically, which at one point I said, look, I, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. And they were okay with it. So it was never like pressure and stuff. And I'm really thankful, thankful for that. But basically, um, it's really strange because I never felt like it. But sometimes people really go like, oh, man, you know, you're really well mannered. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, and that's basically, I got that from my from my parents, to be honest. Was there ever a feeling of other when you were in the school that you you were not exactly, so to speak, from the same background as the other people there yeah. and that you were treated in any way as other? Was, that, was there any feeling of that? Um, Steve, I have no memory of that, to be honest, you know, and, and, and probably it was me just being naive or something, but I really never felt like any other people. And kind of when I grew up, I mean, I'm, I was born 66. So at the very beginning, I would say there were not so many Turkish people in Germany, probably even more Italians or somebody else, but, but it was always kind of cool. And the very first time, and that's, you know, again, me probably, you know, like shoving, shoving stuff to the side, not, not wanting to think about, but the very first time I felt who, who, who or what am I actually was um, 1998, I was uh, almost 32 years old and I was being nominated for a Grammy. And the German press, they were kind of like, oh, one of us is nominated. And the Turkish press wrote as well, oh, one of us is nominated. And then the first time I was like, oh, wow, okay, all right, the Turks, what, what are you, who are you? You know, I, I really felt like sitting between two chairs and that's the first time I really kind of started thinking about, okay, what are you? And I actually have two hearts in my chest and all that stuff. So, you know, the, the usual. What did that do to you, though? Did it, did it change your perspective on your, on your life? Did it make you think any differently or feel any differently? It made me more conscious for sure. You know, I, th I think it didn't change stuff per se, but it, it really made me conscious on where I come from and that it's really good that I have these kind of like two cultures in me that is really what, what actually makes me and probably even, even describes my music the best because, you know, whatever I do, it always has, has this special, you know, ingredient. I, I can't really describe it myself, but I, you know, I, I think it's because of, you know, my, my several cultures, uh, cultures in, in, inputs in me, you know, that I have, have this certain style, you know, of music that I do. So it, it, but, but it kind of the first time it kind of it was a first step of kind of like being even more um you know towards adolescence you know i mean kind of like going going the, the way kind of like thinking all right you know probably understanding life better and and understanding yourself better yeah i think it's interesting because i'm a writer today and i look back and find that my drive came from my search for sexuality which is a completely different thing obviously but in in your terms, it's also, I just wondered whether there was something within you that has given you that drive throughout your life that maybe in retrospect, you can say, okay, maybe it was identity, maybe it was the fact that I was brought up in a Turkish household in Germany. Do you, can you identify where your drivers come from? Because you are definitely a driven person. Right. But that's a very interesting thing that you said that your search of sexuality, because obviously, um, I really can say that I had a very safe and, and solid upbringing. That said, it's obviously, you know, being in a Turkish household, we don't, I mean, I, I have, my son is like 17 years old and we're, we're like mates, you know, we speak about stuff and I didn't have that with my parents. 
you know, it wasn't like, a, you know, I, I, I couldn't speak about, you know, sexual experiences, about any experience. It was basically with my parents, you know, I respected them. I think it was a loving relationship, but it wasn't like so. Um, so there was something, you know, that I was always holding back somehow. And maybe that's probably, probably one reason why I actually, it, it was kind of even against all odds because my dad is really strange because he, he supported me at first learning an instrument and, you know, but obviously he said like, look, this is great. This is, you know, it's going to look good on the outside when my, when my, when my son plays piano or whatever. Um, but, you know, when I turned around and said like, uh, uh, look, that I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm, I'm just going to start, uh, 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 stop studying, uh, studying and I'm going to be, uh, become a musician. He com completely lost it. You know, he was like, wow, you know, so it kind of really, and for me, it was a big step, you know, to do that with my dad, basically. So something there was, as you said, there, there was a drive and a need of, of, of do, to do my thing. And I didn't even know if it's going to be successful or not. You know, I mean, if it's going to be, you know, I just felt it and I did it. And, and this drive, I don't know what it was. If, 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 it's, if it's a natural drive when you have like, when you have like a um, couple, couple of uh, cultures to kind of nurture from, or if it's if it's a lack of something where which which you know kind of gives you this power to say okay you know I'm lacking something on this side so you know I'm I'm going to be more forceful on that side I don't know I mean obviously he had some idea of what he wanted um, you to be in society in general um, exactly and music must have represented something other for him what do you think it represented what was his fear of you being as a, you know, I mean, a at musician. that time, to be, yeah, I mean, my, my dad was a very educated man. And as I said before, you know, he said, like, if, if, if you're not, if, if, if you're not a studied person, academic, you're worth nothing, basically. So a musician was that you, you weren't worth anything, you know, he was probably envisioning long hair, you know, which I was at the time long hair, and, uh, you know, basically smoking spliffs in like recording rooms or whatever, that was probably his his, you know, cliche vision of, of musicians. And the funny thing is, I was mentioning my Grammy nomination uh, uh, um, uh, a while ago. And um, when I was nominated, our mayor sent him a, a, a letter, like congratulating him, not me, but him. And, and that was, I mean, I was 32. And he was basically having that letter in front of me, you know, tears running from his eyes. And he was like, my son, I did not know what you were doing. And then basically this official kind of like, go ahead that, you know, I actually made something out of my life that kind of like gave him peace. I think you were 25 before you actually committed yourself uh, to a career in music, which is relatively late uh, for, for a lot of people. Um, do, what do you feel that you may have missed out on by actually starting late and what do you feel you may have gained by actually being a little older hmm. very good question and um, first of all i didn't start as a study medicine i wanted to but in, in hanover you can only study in the winter time and i kind of i broke my knee playing baseball I, you know i was i was um, doing baseball by, at the time so i was fit again in summer and my dad said look you can't wait around another half a year so study something else and then you switch to medicine later so i started economics which was great, 
but in the you know obviously I was doing music uh, um, in the meantime and um, as you rightly say you know like because you know I still at that time I was studying I never I said look look I'm going to study and music is going to be my love and my hobby or something but then at one point it was so crystal clear that I have to stop everything else and which was pretty late you know which which probably describes the insecurity that I had you know uh, uh, deciding on what to do you know I mean probably it's even more I don't know if it's better today because you have so many possibilities today that we probably didn't have back in the day but um it's I think one good thing because I started so late I was a super hard worker like super hard so it made me work even more because I knew you know I have to work you know this is going to be my 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 my, my real job now and and there's this one anecdote I have to tell you because I got I did this mix for Michael Jackson once and uh, back in the day you know uh, back in the day no internet no nothing so people were actually calling and managements and whatever so I did the mix and then it got finished and then I actually received a call from the record company they put me through to the management and then Michael Jackson was on the other line saying like oh thank you so much for your mix and I want to invite and that was I think 96 I want to invite you to a concert in London and I was like oh thank you Mr Jackson but I have to work seriously <laughs> seriously no no joke Steve and that's probably describes me I was really like this that's probably what my dad did to me or gave me in my you know said like you you have to work probably nowadays I, I would be like all right Mike I'm on the on the next plane but that's one thing I'm not sure if it's good or bad probably it's a good thing you know if, you, if you're a hard worker and what I've m missed out um maybe it's only like a timing thing that I probably probably would have saved like a couple of years or probably would have been five years uh earlier or five years yeah like ahead you know of, of what I am now I mean, that track was Ghost, wasn't it? But I just want to talk exactly. about Errol Reynolds because he has been a key person in, yes. in your life. Um, when you met him, what connected you at that point? Yeah. Um, Errol, I mean, we know each other now for 36, 37 years. And he basically, he, 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 he was originally from Birmingham. England and he came over to Germany to basically you know which I totally respect I, I mean I'm still living in Hanover in my in the town I grew up you know so and he basically you know like went to another country to kind of like you know do something else for his living so he was a professional dancer you know he got a job in Hanover with his uh, brother with his then girlfriend and we met because a band kind of like hired me as a keyboard player and they hired Error that wanted to try him out as a singer. So this we met. This was Hans Hahn, and this is Fresh and Fly, isn't it? Is this, uh, no, it's, it's, even, it's, it's even before that. Uh, even ah. before that, it was like a like a different band, and they kind of hired us. So we 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 got to know each other there. You know, fell in love basically, and then we said like, look, let's leave the band and do Fresh and Fly, our own band. And basically, we're working um, in the in the cellar of my dad. You know, like like writing songs, uh, although we probably didn't know at the time that we actually were writing songs. You know, we just like throwing ideas it sounded great and um what i loved about eric because you know most of the songs we did most of the big songs or all the songs we basically wrote co-wrote together and errol had this certain drive at the time i met him he was really i mean you know again you know there's a big step you know to move to another country you can't speak the language you know obviously thanks god a lot of people speak english in germany and uh, so he was basically, I mean, I was, I was probably, I would say the creative mind, but he was the, the drive behind 
what we were doing. And then a lot of things actually happened from this uh, friendship at first and then business relationship, you know, later. Yeah, so how did that develop it, from these early tracks to actually then um, setting up your own Peppermint Jam, setting up your own studios? How did that develop from yeah. one thing to the next? Well, I mean, again, we're in Hanover. We're not in Berlin or London or Paris or New York. So Hanover, is, it's, it, it had a good music scene, but it was very rock orientated. So we loving black music, dance music, you know, we had to kind of like create our own bubble. So we did the songs, you know, we, we kind of like started to sp spread out in the, in the local scene, you know, which wasn't that easy, but I was DJing at the time, Arrow was DJing. We met people um, in studios, you know, I had my own studio at first with another friend of mine, Ralf Drösemeyer, who's doing More Horizons. Um, then I reached out to Peppermint Park Studios, who were doing a lot of rock and fueling the slaughterhouse and all that stuff. And then we're basically like, look, I'm your guy for the groovy stuff. So, you know, we started to do that. I was becoming bigger and bigger in, uh, in, in, in remixing, basically, you know, which was a big, big thing, like beginning and mid 90s. Um, Errol actually, he got a job at SPV, which was a, a, um, a big record company, like in, in on big distribution as well in Europe, doing like a lot of like heavy metal and rock and whatever. So he got like a job as an A&R for like black stuff, black music, and all went from, went from there basically. And then, you know, we did, I did more and more remixes, starting doing productions on my own, you know, co-writing stuff. Um, and then obviously, you know, our writing was pretty pretty cool i would say we got our first publishing deal with rondor which was basically back in the day help albert and jerry moss from a m records so they signed us and stuff happened from there then then you know the, we started the label because there wasn't any outfit for us in germany you know we were like okay we're doing this really cool kind of almost like either london or, or um, us garage house music and 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 germany was very kind of like uh, uh, no, not electronic, but Eurodance at the time. And we're like, you know, nobody wants our stuff. So, you know, let's release it ourselves. So we started building that with other partners. And um, yeah, and then obviously, you know, the first big records came along. The first brick record on the label was Keep Pushing that I co-wrote and produced for, for Boris Lugos. And then not long after that, basically Horny came along. And then basically that changed a lot of a lot of stuff for us, you know, in the positive, I would say. Before we get to, to Horny, there, there is this long development period, which you sort of, you know, you've made it sound like it was five minutes, but it was quite a few years. Exactly. <laughs> and, and well, I just, if you have the time, Steve, I'm happy to talk. No, no, because I'm really fascinated by these periods, because for me, when there is a long development period, you learn a lot. You learn yes. a huge amount about different areas of the, you know, the music business, not only the, the creative side, it's also, you know, over a long period, there's also development of technology, which changes music as well. And music changes on the outside while you're changing on the inside. So how difficult was it for you to actually um, get the respect? You said you oriented yourself to Britain and to US House and Garage. How difficult was it for you to get the respect of those different territories in your music coming from a country where you're developing original music in that country? Because it was Eurodance at that point. Mm -hmm. it's a very good question. To be honest, I mean, it, it is still like that. I feel that it was never a problem to get respect outside of Germany. 
because funny enough, you know, when the people, they saw my name, oh, Musti, oh, it's this guy from England, right? Or Musti, oh, it's this guy from the US, right? But they never thought that I would come from Germany. And um, it was really hard to kind of like build everything up in Germany, actually, because it's kind of like, I don't know if it was a cultural thing or, or a musical thing or that, that we actually made music, which was more catering, catering, uh, you know, the English and the US territory. But but they loved us from the very beginning. They were like, oh, wow, this is cool and this is new and this is great. But in Germany still, sometimes I have the feeling that you really have to explain yourself. And when I mean, I play a lot over in the UK and the people I sometimes think that the people know my music better than I do. You know, it's really like it, it, it's it's musically. They're so educated. So it's so, so in their DNA. And um and as you rightly said, it sounded really fast, like how it all, you know, happened. But it basically from like sleeping on couches in studios, you know, driving to Hamburg and to Frankfurt to work in studios, make connections, whatever, until we had the first our own record release. And then, you know, like building a label, you know, and all that stuff. It's a it's it's a big thing. But 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 in terms of, you know, the, the outcome, basically, you know, that, that's what the people only see. You know, they, they don't see the hard work and um yeah now thinking about it it, it really it, it really makes me proud but as you said um or basically to conclude it's like the outside they always loved us in germany it was always kind of like yeah it's cool what they do but you know hey and 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 uh, i'm not being bitter but for instance something like sex bomb or horny you know we have the echoes the the music price and and these tracks I mean, we, we, I performed at the Echoes with Tom, but it was never considered a German piece of music, funny enough, which I still don't compute. You know, it, it's basically, it was done in Germany, it was written in Germany. It's, it's, it's a musical, it's, it's, it's a piece of German culture, basically, but it was never, you know, the people didn't put one and one together somehow. I mean, when I first came to Germany, one thing that really... <laughs> Probably the wrong word. But when, it really when, did, when did you come over? When did you um, come over? Well, I moved to Germany in '94, but I was always 94. coming because I, because of MTV, I was flying backwards and forwards, and I yeah. made lots of friends in Germany. So for me, it was an easy choice to to move here eventually. Um, but when I was here, to find this whole section of music called Schlager was a big yeah. shock to me. Because um, and, and and I respect the fact that if you make music, it is music, and and everyone has their own tastes and whatever. But for me, this was um, something that that felt so different from the society that I grew up with, with where we all loved pop music and we were all into pop music. And here, it seemed to have two sides to it, and that felt like it restricted the development of small pockets of of uh, music in Germany. Um, do you think that is specific, you know, only in Germany? And why do you think there has been a resistance to new styles? Well, there was at that period, a resistance to new styles. Um, very interesting because, um... At, I mean, I, I thought about these things a lot. And for me, at the beginning, I was like, all right, it's got to be like a, a language thing. Because obviously, the English, their pop music is maybe Schlager to them. I don't know. You know, if you listen to Tom Jones, is that Schlager to you? Or, <coughs> you know. And 
obviously, you know, if, if, if you look historically, you know, there's great German composers, you know, classical composers, you know, which you have coming up. And then you have, bam, you have the war, you know, Second World War, you know, everything goes to shit. Um, but then something good happens to Germany, I think, be, uh, you know, um, having the English, the Americans, maybe even the French um, here and basically bringing their culture, because that's how I grew up. You know, in Germany, we had the, the British and even I don't know if you knew that David, David Rodigan, he was born in Germany at the British Military Hospital. You know what I mean? So it's, 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 it's great. So all the culture, like the reggae, the soul, the English music. I basically soaked up from them. Then you had like Frankfurt or the south of Germany, where the Americans basically, you know, brought the R&B and, you know. So um, I think that was good for Germany. And, and even the Schlager, you know, it's, it's, I mean, you have people like Marianne Rosenberg, er gehört zu mir, basically putting German lyrics on a very wide kind of track. So it was always probably the German nature of kind of like taking something and making it their own. And um, but I still wouldn't condemn Schlager because if you listen to some stuff, you know, it's it has something to it, you know, which is fine. But obviously, and I'm not even sure if it's a German thing or if it's a human thing, that if something's successful, be it Barry White or whatever, people take it, copy it, make something own and, and then, you know, it has a life on its own. And, and Germany is very good at it. I'm not sure if it's a good thing, but, you know, if something's successful, they just jump on it and make it big and make it. You know, and and um, but in terms of identity, it's a tough one. I've just been to Italy, you know, to to do some work at at the San Remo Festival. They love their, their they love their artists. You know, French. They love their artists. You know, um, the English. Everybody loves their art. In Germany, it's always a tough one. You know, it's always historically, as you said, Schlager, a bit difficult, cheesy. Now all the pop music is is a, very brainy to me. To be honest, it's not organic. You know, could be could be cooler. There's very great artists in Germany, but it's not how I feel that other other countries, you know, kind of like organically develop their their own culture. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. We had our label, Peppermint Jam, you know, I think it was founded nine, end of 93 or nine, yeah, end of 93. So we had the possibility to release our own music, you know, press up vinyl, you know, it was beautiful. And it was, it was almost like a playground. So whenever, you know, I had something cool or, you know, if I said like, look, I just pressed it up and then, you know, we just distributed it all over the world. Beautiful, great feeling. Um, I did this Michael Jackson mix, we were talking about it, and I still am crazy like that, but not as crazy as I used to be, that whenever I do mixes, and that's, I don't know if it's because I'm a Libra or, you know, I'm messed up in my mind, whatever, but I, I can never only just do one version. I do like separate version. I do like a cool radio mix. I do like a club mix. I do a dub, whatever. So basically I did the remix for Michael Jackson and as a kind of like a, a leftover, you know, I wanted to, to do like a cool dub mix, you know, to kind of like complete the package. And at the end, I didn't do it. And then I said, like, look, Michael, here's your mixes. And that little dub mix that I started sounds really cool, but I'm just going to put it to the side. So I had it in my in the vaults, basically. And then month later, we had um, a friend of ours, uh, Roger Sanchez, who's a well-known US uh, house DJ. He came over to Hanover. We hung 
and uh, he played that night and they were just exchanging tracks and listening to demos or whatever so i played him that thing i didn't even forgot about it whatever and he completely lost it he was like oh my god what is this you know we have to release it and then errol my partner he was the same he said like oh my god this sounds so special amazing track and then i thought all right if you you know if you feel it you know let's let's press it up and do something so i did like a a cool picture disc with the instrument with a track called horny like an instrumental track and a track called bad boy on the flip side and it completely flew out of the window it kind of like people were crazy about it we sold shitloads of vinyl you know i don't know 150,000 vinyl or something at the time so it really gained attention of all like you know especially the uk a&r so we're like oh my god what is this and then something started you know for the first time um uh, which we call a bidding war basically you know like people from the record companies they were kind of like all right i want to have this track we offer you this money the next company was like i want to have the track we offer you and then they completely you know and, and we're like really wow it's the instrumental track and people going so crazy about it you know what let us try to put a vocal on top of the track to kind of like you know make it make it a song and um that's what we did um errol errol met this um met these two girls from Birmingham, you know, which we didn't even know if they could sing, Emma Lanford and Nadine Richardson. So we flew them over, you know, we worked on the track, uh, um, the track, um, the song Horny happened basically. So it was basically, the idea was, um, I called the track Horny because of like the horn samples I was using in the track. And then obviously if, if you convert that to a song, you kind of make it like, you know, a, a more sexual or more like, you know, um, horny, horny, uh, you know, lyric, basically. Um, but that must yeah, have occurred uh, to you immediately. I mean, you know, you say from the horn section. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you knew what you were doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, um, guilty as pledged, but uh, uh, yeah, and that's how the track happened. And basically, it was really, it's, it's, it's a really standout track, basically, at the time. And, and even, I mean, we had, you know, the whole... Obviously, the English loved it, you know, it was crazy. It was a worldwide hit. We even signed it to America. Actually, Rick Rubin, I don't know if you know that, he signed the track to American Records in, uh, in the US, you know, and obviously, you know, we, it was hard to get radio in the UK, uh, US for it. So what those guys did, Rick and George Reculius, they put it on the South Park movie and on the South Park compilation. And that's how, you know, it became a big record without even having radio. How did... Um success change you at that point because did you fear success or did you actually just say come here if this is fantastic i'm enjoying this because some people have a real problem that you you work yeah. for so many years to get a massive hit and then suddenly you have this hit and there's a fear that comes up so i just wondered what came up in you yeah. well to be fair steve i didn't work all the years to have a hit it just happened at one point it was almost like an accident which felt great but it was scary and actually there were two points which were, which really changed for me first of all was basically um um all the recognition that you get you know guys like you mtv viva back in the day you know all of a sudden people were kind of like seeing the video they were when you walked down the street they were kind of like <coughs> excuse me turning around it really felt awkward it was really like oh that's strange you know and it, it really felt uncomfortable. I'm really now used to it and I love talking about my music. Back then it was really awkward. And the second point, basically me coming from the underground, 
all of a sudden having an overground hit really felt strange because you always the fear that you have is basically that you're not cool anymore you know the people go like oh you know you know he was cool last year but now he's like oh i don't know you know and and that's funny enough that happened with horny because people like master at work everybody all the the great djs they were playing the instrumental version but when the when the vocal came about it like shifted to another dimension it like you know on the radio or whatever so something something happened there you know which i still yet had to digest so how did you deal with recognition um i just threw myself into it basically i mean really it was really awkward at the beginning i was almost getting angry and people kind of look i was like all right you know what's you know any any funny t-shirt i'm wearing or anything but then I went to it and then at one point it, it really felt good that you had the opportunity as an artist to, um, to speak about your own music. Uh, I mean, basically it was like schooling, you know, something you have to do and that you have to throw yourself into it. I mean, I know there's, what's the guy's name again? Um, a great piano player with a, with a dark voice, you know, the big old, uh, one of the biggest like songwriters um, what not? You don't mean someone like Johnny Cash or not Johnny or... Cash, but uh, what's the guy's name? It maybe comes, but he said basically, look, you can buy you can buy my albums, but I'm not I'm not going to give you any interviews. Basically, you know what I mean? That's what he said, and which is fine. But I'm the opposite. I love talking about my music, you know, rather than have other people speak about my music, you know, and maybe have different ideas. So you know, I just threw myself into it. To be honest, do you think the fact that you've been in Hanover? your whole life and that you've had the structure that that gives you do you think that maybe that was also a savior because when I came to Germany and uh, I came here very well known but I, I was even better known in Germany than I was in in Britain so I, I came to Germany and it was explosion and I didn't have a sort of safety net and I went a bit mad. <laughs> it was a lot yeah. of fun, but I went a little bit mad. And, yeah. and I think it's because I didn't have that sort of security that you would had in, in Hanover. So what role did that play for you? Yes, I think that's a major point, uh, the security. And plus, as we already stated before, you know, I kind of started with the whole game quite late. Just imagine me being 17, like the guys from... Uh, uh, um, you know, uh, what's the guy's name again? Um, uh, uh, in the monsoon, um, Tokyo Hotel. Young kids, you know, becoming super, becoming superstars from one minute to the other. And then obviously you're going to freak out. Or maybe if you don't have like a certain structure, you know, you maybe even might, might even start and end your career the same day. So that was a good thing that horny, I was like 32 basically with my first big hit. So it was, I, I was a grown man. And, and the Hanover, the Hanover situation is a good point. You know, it's a, it's a, I mean, I always kind of, or basically the question is, why are you still in Hanover? And I'm like, okay, you know, now obviously, you know, look at what, what we are doing. You can connect to the world, you know, easily. You can fly wherever, wherever you want. You know, I, I do sessions in LA or London or whatever. It's a good thing. But again, you know, you always think what might have happened if I would have moved to London or New York, you know, after after having the successful loan, maybe I would be, you know, somewhere else in other like, you know, in other dimensions or nothing would have happened. So it's always like this kind of like, you know, what if, you know? I mean, you mentioned earlier about your, your father being a bit resistant to your music career and um, your big hit, 
that comes out is called horny. <laughs> I just want, I would love to have been a fly on the wall when you went home to dad and mum for dinner one night yeah. and they asked you, what's your new single called? <laughs> what happened? But, I mean, my, my dad passed away last year, so I still can't ask him, uh, but but I think he, he you know, he, he didn't even care, you know, he just, he just knew something was happening and I was I was getting recognized for my, for my work that was great my mom she's she's really cool she still comes up you know when I have like gigs somewhere she still comes standing she doesn't care you know what they what they understood actually was my was my collaboration with Tom Jones because they knew Tom Jones you know he was big in Turkey back in the day big star and even their sex bomb they didn't even care about the title they were just like oh Tom Jones thumbed up you know what I mean but obviously we had a lot of friends and people from the US or like English speaking speaking countries saying like, Oh, my God, what have you done? You know, it's like, I, I have to tell my kids, uh, kids that actually it's like honey, 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 and not horny and whatever. So you know, to kind of like get a little, you know, detour. <laughs> so tell me about sex bomb, because as you said, you know, you fulfilled a, a dream of your mother, probably by actually exactly. recording with Tom Jones. And that came about um after horny can you tell me how that came about and uh how it was went down in the studio yes definitely so after the success success of horny and 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 my success as a producer like you do in productions remix whatever so we had some recognition and um um we met tom's son mark woodward who's actually managing him we met him at the music fair uh, the medium in Cannes. And he was like, oh, my God, you know, we love what you do. And maybe if you're up for it, why don't you like uh, remix some of Tom's old stuff? And we we're like, yeah, great. But it never happened, actually. But we had the contact to them. And us, obviously, having this single hit under our belt, you know, we're like, all right, so now we have to work on an album, you know, to become a legit, legit artist, basically. And then and then we, we, we kind of toyed around with that idea of having maybe doing a cool track with Tom Jones, you know, and then we're like throwing ideas back and forth. And then we said, you know, we kind of said, Tom is a sex symbol for us because, he, you know, I mean, even now at gigs, he still gets thrown underwear on stage and all that stuff, you know what I mean? And with the sexy like hip moves and everything. So we're, we're starting, you know, I was playing the chords and it came up with like this bluesy riff and Arrow was like, yeah, sex symbol, sex symbol. But it really faint, like, uh, felt like, you know, awkward. So I was like, why don't we go like Sex Bomb? And then we, it, it immediately hit, you know, we do, did the song. Um, Emma, Emma Lanford, who sang Horny, she did the demo. We sent it over to, to Tom. He loved it. So I flew over to London. We recorded the track. Um, you know, Tom, he was basically, I mean, that's how he, how he works in the studio. He had like a towel. He was sweating. He did like two, two takes, you know, amazing. I turned around to Errol, I was like, you know, because Horny, I didn't know if it was would become a hit or not, but Sespom, I heard what Tom did, I was like, you know, this is huge. And um, so I, I, you know, took the track back to Hanover, finished it, sent it to Tom, he loved it. And then I was, because the idea was basically that it was, uh, that I would use it for my album. But then Tom heard the finished product and then he was like, look, Musti, I know it's for you, but would you mind me having it on my album? And he basically really fought for it because uh, his album at the time, you know, this like collaboration album, which made him like kind of like cool and big again, it was all, all right, already like done and dusted. So basically this track wouldn't even make the album if Tom 
wouldn't have like really insisted that it was and I was like hey you know you're you're the you're the king so you know you're the tiger so you go have the track we make a duet out of it and it was great for both of us what was his contribution in the studio because you say you know he he reminds me of stories of Tina Turner walking into the studio and recording for heaven 17 ball of confusion and then they them thinking it this is just a rehearsal and and she just blows them out of the you know, out of the studio with her voice. Um, what did Tom contribute to the song? Because he's had such a great experience, a long experience in his life. I presume he also brought something with him. Yes. I mean, the first thing he brought with him is, first of all, his talent. The second thing he told me later is like, Musti, whatever you do, you have to be really, you have to like the song. Because if you record something, if you don't like 100% stand behind it, and you have to perform it 50 years on stage, it's going to kill you if you have to sing something you don't like. So that was a really good advice that he gave me. And basically what he did is two very clever things. First of all, we're going through the lyrics and we obviously wrote a th song about Tom Jones because like him being a sex bomb, it, 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 the original lyric was sex bomb, sex bomb, I'm a sex bomb. It was Tom singing about it. And he's like, look, I really appreciate you guys, you know, doing this for me, but why don't we change it, you know, for a matter of perspective and go like sex bomb, sex bomb, you're a sex bomb. So kind of a lot of people can identify. So he basically took the took the spotlight a little away from him, which was really clever. And the second thing what he did basically, he recorded the track on the on the on my original demo in the studio. And then he was like, he was like, all right, you know, this feels really good, but I'm warm now. I can take it up a couple of couple of notes. You know, basically you have to transpose the track. And I was, I mean, back in the day, you know, we didn't have any Pro Tools, Logic, whatever. So it was really, I was like, oh my God, I brought a DAT with the instrumental. And then we kind of managed with a harmonizer, this kind of like, you know, geeky, geeky transposing machine to, to kind of transpose the tracks a couple of, couple of semitones higher. And then he really belted it out. So he, he knew exactly what he could do with his voice, you know, and where he's sounding the best. And that's actually, if you know the track Sex Bomb, you know, the, the, the track basically flows along beautifully. And then I have this like kind of transition part in the middle of it, and it takes it higher. And that's what gave me the idea to do that. So Tom is the dude, man. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that that sort of modulation of like going up uh, a few levels, it goes up a yeah. few levels, is, is, is really what makes that track even yes. a greater track yeah. which is which is brilliant um we talked about the, the at the beginning about uh, identity and that um your father uh, was much more accepting once he'd got this letter from the, <laughs> the local government and also when you were nominated for a for a grammy both you, you were accepted as turkish in turkey and german in in germany um and that opened your eyes to identity did it open your eyes also then to Turkish music, did, did that change? Did you suddenly decide, okay, maybe there is a whole culture here that I also need to invest in a little? I mean, I was always curious and open for stuff, but I had this kind of like little devil devil underground, I would call him, you know, saying like, look, you know, you're, you're doing cool stuff, whatever. And the success of Horny first and then Sex Bomb more so, really opened my vision and said like because with sex bombs really funny I've, i mean my, my dear friend simon dunmore he runs defected records and he called me up when sex bomb was number one and said like look congratulations on the success but 
you know, I think that's it with your coolness. I mean, my fear with Horny basically now is sex bomb even multiplied, you know. And I was like, oh my God. And then I really kind of like, I was like, no, I calmed down and said like, look, but but why not why not try things? Why not just like, if I want to do a hard rock track or R&B or whatever, I'm, I'm going to do it. If it's shit, I'm not going to play to anybody, but at least I'm going to go for it. So this curiosity and the professionalism as a producer kind of like really, really kind of like started after I had sex bomb and and obviously Turkish music or basically music with like other structures and formulas really kind of like, uh, uh, you know, I was really interested in kind of like digging deeper there. I mean, what you've diversified over the years, and I think that has been really interesting. And you've had, obviously, you've been, you know, musician, you've, you know, you're a producer, uh, you're running a company, you've got all these different facets to you. And then you become a judge on Deutschland Superstar, which is Germany's version of um, Pop Idol. Um, and this is an entertainment show, and we know it as an entertainment show, but it also is an entertainment show that brings up um, young artists in some way I've always looked at that and felt a fear that they are if they win they are catapulted incredibly quickly into success without the long learning process that you had for example um, so on that show how do you nurture new talent for yourself how how do you actually sort of explain to them what it's really about because it isn't just about having a one hit and then disappearing it's about trying to develop a career isn't it definitely i mean obviously first of all i mean i mean i have to be really honest here you know the the very beginning i started obviously and that's a process of 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 recognition and like uh marketing promotion whatever as as an artist that you obviously at one point you apart from the cool music stations that we that we used to have with MTV and Viva, you know, you go on national television, you do this, you know, you, you dive in and basically it's promotion, you know, you do it because, you know, obviously you, you like what you do, but it's more so, all right, maybe I'm going to tap into like other audiences or whatever. So I have to be really honest here, but what I find out found out is basically like what I do on these shows is what I do actually as a music producer in the studio. I speak to young talent, you know, I gave them, I give them advice, you know, I nurture them, I help them on the way. And, and that's what actually these shows, if they're done, done well, that's what they actually do. But you have a point is like, you know, that sometimes, you know, you really take a long time to, to, to basically, uh, to, to work in your craft or on your talent. And um, yeah, this is a really nice saying, I don't know who said it. it's like, I, I became I became a star overnight and that took me 20 years. You know, that's basically, you know, that's, that's what it is. But I don't think that it's really bad to, to get chances given or even like the Beatles. I mean, they were basically put together through a friend or to a manager or whoever. So, you know, if, if you kind of like do that, my only criticism, and that's probably like a German thing, I'm not sure because the very, you know, the No Angels back then is was probably the, the first like, big, big group out of Germany, they, you know, they, they did everything kind of okay, because they had a structure, great songs. Apart from that, I think the, the English and the and the Americans, they really do it well, they really take it serious. And you can you can tell like even somebody like Sir Tom Jones is now, now a judge on, on, on the voice, you know, which is great. But 
the Germans is very kind of like it, it is an entertainment show. It's got got not so much to do with actually the music. You know, you want to entertain, you know, the families at home and, and give them good stories and give them give them emotions and stuff. So I think it's it's as an experience, it's okay, but obviously I'm aware it's a tough one. If 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 I'm a singer, if I'm 18 years old and I have the chance to perform on television. Even for the fun of it, I would probably go for it. I don't know. I mean, as we, as we get older, um, connection to uh, youth culture is becomes more difficult. It becomes much more of an effort. Right. <laughs> and no, necessary. Right. We don't necessarily want to do it. I mean, you know, people change over their lives and, and everything. Um, how do you see your connection? Uh, how that? Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Montz. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero? or the villain. On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. A little something something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) (laughs) We're professional unprofessional, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. Has developed uh, over the years, and how do you see that going in the future? Um, It's a very good question, especially as a producer. I mean, as an artist, anyway. I mean, look at Madonna; she's always like, or or actually, she used to always like dig deep and see, you know, who's cool and what's what. You know, that's really cool. But as a producer, you always. You're always, I mean, I'm always checking music. I'm always checking trends and all that stuff. But me as a, yeah, I mean, I, tr- I think one, one thing you really have to be, no matter what is, be authentic. Authentic. I see that when I DJ, you know, it's like if I really do my stuff and not try to be somebody else or try to be young or whatever, people love it. You know, I have like, I, I play wherever. They have 18 year olds in the crowd. They go like, oh, I'm horny, you know, great, whatever. So it's it's great. So if, if you just stick to what you can do or whatever, then I think, I mean, that's that's my experience anyway. So it's, it's it, and, and people, they, they will, and that's the beauty about art. You know, at one point, there's always this kind of, I would say 15 or 20 year cycle, you know, they, they, they will dig again and find out something like the nineties are back, they were hip again, you know, so people dig and see, oh man, that's the tracks you did like 20 years ago and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, be authentic. I want to finally end on something that's very sort of personal to me, which is uh, obviously as someone who was on uh, MTV between 87 and 94, um, which had a great impact on German youth culture because uh, Germany only had a couple of TV channels. It had very few music shows. It had their version of um, Top of the Pops, which was called Formal Eins, which went out once a week. And I I think Music Box had just arrived uh, just before MTV. But when MTV came along, it it was a sort of uh, earth shattering impact on, on the youth culture. What do you feel that 
brought the youth at the time and what do you feel could come along next to bring the next major impact? Oh, <laughs> deep questions. I mean, obviously what it, what especially MTV brought to the youth, to all of us basically was, I mean, was everything. You could actually now see who's behind the music. You could see styles, you know, it not, not only nurtured you on your music taste, on your uh, cultural upbringing, it gave you it gave you the fashion, you know, it gave you the haircuts, it gave you everything. So it was it was really important. You know, it was basically the first social media, if you want to say so, you know, it was amazing. So so it started a lot. And the next thing that could come, it's 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 a tough one because right now we have so much. So I'm not sure if it's if if if, if everything has to kind of like, you know, go back into niches and like reinvent themselves and I'm, I'm not sure, Steve, you know, it's, it's... A reason I ask that is because I think today there is, um, people are more centered on technology than on what technology can do. So you are more centered on what type of iPhone you have rather than what that iPhone can do for you. And I just wondered whether that, there will be another sort of shift. Um, and I don't want to say back because I don't think we will go back in any any form. We can't go back. We've moved on too far, probably. But in terms of moving the creativity back into the front rather than the technology that brings mm -hmm. the creativity. Um, I mean, obviously, there's great examples of artists. I mean, look at David Bowie. You know, he obviously he was a singer songwriter. But if you went like if, if you dug deep and then went to this exhibition, you saw he's a beautiful He's a beautiful uh, uh, fashion designer. He's a painter. He invented a, uh, uh, he invented a computer program, you know, to deal with his lyrics and all that stuff. So what I want to say with that is basically, obviously, a lot of stuff is depending on technology. But as you said, first of all, we have to learn to deal with the technology appropriately and then then probably look outside because that's what actually that what makes art sexy, because me as a as a musician, I still look outside and see, okay, what, what, what is going on in, in the design world, in the food world, you know, get my inspirations and stuff. And that's, if we, I think, manage to cooperate with other, other um, art forms, you know, that's what's going to make things sexy and then combine it with te te technology, I think, you know, but, but again, you know, it's nothing new, you know, people like Peter Gabriel, David Bowie, whoever, uh, they, they, they already did it. But now if we kind of like nurture a little bit on that, feel that might be might be a cool thing well miss t thank you very much for talking to me and thank you for your contribution to our culture because i think it's important to thank people because they contribute massively and and it's it's a really positive thing and i have been to your studios i interviewed the scorpions just before no it was just uh it was during the first year of covid and I went there and they were, uh, they came into the studio to do an interview with me. So oh, I've, wow. I've been there. <laughs> oh, wow. So, I missed you. Yeah, you have to come back. Yeah. Exactly. So next time in Hanover, I'm coming to visit. Um, brilliant. Thanks very much. And Thanks I so wish much, you much Steve. success in your future. Thank you so much. And see you soon. Yeah.